Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's take some time tonight to look into the Word of God, and we're going to be talking about our favorite subject, Jesus. And so let's, uh, let's look at John 13 and verse 31. This is conversations with Jesus and John, and this is the second conversation that we'll cover with Peter. So this is Peter number two um, in terms of the conversation, and we're going to look at verse uh, 31 through chapter 14, verse 6, just to kind of cover Uh, a whole territory here. The setting of the conversation is that it's in the upper room, right? All of like 12, uh, the latter part of 12 on is is in the upper room through uh, uh, the crucifixion scenario when they they cross over and go to the garden and, and Jesus is rested there. So there's quite a few chapters and a lot of content, a lot of conversation, a lot of private dialogue. Uh, preparation for what's going to take place that happens in the upper room. And Jesus, so he's there. What's what's he doing in the upper room? Well, he is washing feet. That's uh, <laughs> go right to the details. Uh, uh, yeah, I was thinking more bigger, uh, bigger picture. They're celebrating the Passover. Yes. Uh, and washing feet. Um, what's that? They do communion. Yeah, they institute the uh, um, ordinance of communion. And at this point in the evening, uh, Judas has just left. Jesus said to his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And and John is leaning. I would kind of like to see this. Because, you know, when you see the Last Supper portrait, that's not how it went. Because it says that they were reclining at the table. They weren't sitting in chairs at the table like, uh, is it Da Vinci that did that? Michelangelo, which one is it? I always get those two confused. Does it matter to anybody? Okay, Da Vinci. All right, so uh, we know that picture is not exactly exactly accurate. We see John in the biblical story leaning against Jesus, and Peter uh, asks him, asks John, "Who is it that's going to betray you, Lord?" And he says, "The one whom I we both dip our bread in the cup at the same time." So it says at that moment when they dip the the cup or the bread in the cup that. Satan entered Judas, and he left. He said, what you must do, Jesus said to him, uh, do quickly. And so he leaves the room, and it's as if maybe some kind of, and we know there is a malevolent presence that was there with Judas, but something changes in the atmosphere of the room. Uh, All of a sudden, the tone seems to change. There's not so much tension, or if there's tension, there's tension in a different way. There's a weightiness to this particular moment. And so... Uh, like uh, like that probably of seeing somebody that you're not going to see for a long time for the last time, you know? Have you ever been in that scenario where there's kind of a weightiness to that moment, even an awkwardness a little bit, because you're saying goodbye and you don't know how long it'll be? And I don't know that the disciples fully know this, but I think at least from Jesus' perspective, that's how it must have felt. And maybe there was a sense of that. You know, when you get into a room with people, you can kind of feel if there's a kind of tension going on or something that's taking place. And, and I don't understand all of that, except that we are, we are more than our um, psychological faculties and we're more than our body. And so there's something taking place there. And I, I, wanna, I want us to get in that moment as best we can to understand what's taking place here. And so Jesus he speaks gently to his disciples, and we know that from the tone that he takes. Um, at one point, he calls him, he calls the disciples, my children, my children. And he uses this little Greek word. Uh, let's see if we can do it here. That's a T, not, a, not an F, technia. And it means my little children. It's kind of a nursery thing that you would say to maybe toddlers. And so Jesus is uh, usually speaks to his disciples in a different way, but here he calls them um, my little children. And it's kind of a beautiful moment. So you know the mood of the room, as Jesus says, some of the final and important things to prepare. 
his disciples. Let's pick up reading here in chapter 13 and verse 31. He says, uh, says when he was gone. Who's the he there? Judas. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once or immediately. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And I, I want you to notice the chapter breaks are not there uh, in our original, our earliest manuscripts. We don't have chapter breaks. They don't come until, I think, uh, somewhere around the 1400s. At least the verses don't come till then. Chapter breaks don't either. So the story continues. I'd just like to pick up because the conversation has turned a little bit away from Peter. We know that from the pronouns that are used. They're plural. And it's turned back to the disciples. But he says, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to where uh, to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered what? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And So there's a a big thing that he's talking about here, and I want to break this up into three different parts. The first one is, I'm going to have to um, horrify you with my writing here. Oh, boy. Plan ahead. Glorification. All right? And that's in verses 31 and 32. Jesus begins to talk about his glorification. Um, look at uh, look at those verses, 31 and 32. When when Judas was gone, Jesus said, "Now, now, this this moment, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself, and will glorify Him at once." One of the tricks to interpreting Scripture and understanding what the emphasis is is repetition. And what's the word that's repeated? If you were just to bring it down to a root word. Glory, glorification. It's talking about Jesus's glorification. And glorify means to exalt, to honor or dignity. Jesus is saying that in this moment uh, or as this moment passes, I'm being glorified. I'm being exalted to a place of honor and dignity or elevation to glory. To glorify is to elevate to glory. He says, now uh, the Son of Man is glorified. So what Jesus means with that is that with Judas gone on his mission of betrayal, that some dominoes have begun to fall and they're going to tumble in quick order and the son of man will be tried and crucified. But Jesus sees this as the, he sees this through the resurrection and the exaltation. Okay. He doesn't just see crucifixion as the final uh, chapter or the final thing. When the disciples look at it with their eyes, they're going to see it that way, at least for the moment. Like it's going to, it's going to take the wind out of them spiritually. Remember the two kicking the rocks down the road on the road to Emmaus? Like they're, they're down and out. And uh, Jesus comes walking along beside them. Wouldn't you love to see, like if, if there's video footage of all of this in heaven, uh, wouldn't it be interesting to watch that? go down, like the moment that they really realize that Jesus is raised, and he's talking to them, and they're like, haven't you heard of what's going on? Are you the only person who hasn't heard what's going on? Jesus is the only one that knew what really was going on, but they were still stuck 
in B.C., right? They hadn't quite gotten the picture of what was happening after the resurrection. And so uh, the Son of Man is being glorified. And he sees it through that light. He sees that the cross, even the, the lifting up, is going to come in such rapid succession that he doesn't just stop there. And I think there's a challenge in that for us is that oftentimes we're caught in the moment of things. And in that dark moment, we're caught and stuck in the dark moment. And uh, I think it was Eugene Peterson that said in one of his books that people often live according to the last 10 minutes of their lives. Whatever the last 10 minutes have had, if it was bad or good, that's where their mood lies, a lot of people. And I think that's uh, that's probably true. And And Jesus isn't looking at it like that. He understands what's coming, that this is his glorification. In fact, he sees the cross, his ultimate mission, as the way, as the pathway to glory. And in fact, uh, I don't know if you, if any of you are from Pennsylvania here. Uh, we got one that's from Pennsylvania. Anybody know who the founder of Pennsylvania was? Also, John's from Pennsylvania. William Penn. Did you know that he was a Christian? Okay. If you, if yeah, he was a Quaker and uh, really devout Christian. He wrote uh, a book called "No Cross, No Crown." And he saw that the pathway to the glory of God often meant that you had to carry, well, you have to carry your cross. And so William Penn, one of our founding fathers, he understood this. And I would encourage us that we understand that this is part of our life too, that that when we walk with Jesus, there's a cross that we have to carry. And there's a lot of American preachers that that skip over this altogether. They don't think there's a cross in American Christianity, and there is. And probably we're going to have to carry that in a heavier manner more and more. I don't mean to be bleak with that. I'm just telling you that that this is the Christian life. If there's been a reprieve and it's been easy, then we ought to consider ourselves an exception. That's not been the case throughout history. And it's not the case of many around the world even now. So he sees this as the pathway to his glorification. And so I, I thought about this a little bit that... Jesus sees his cross through the resurrection exaltation. And while he may have been condemned in the court of humanity, he's going to be vindicated by heaven in the resurrection. It's God overturning the verdict of man. Uh, This chain of events is going to lead to Christ being glorified. And so glorification here in terms of that, he's talking about the cross and the resurrection. There's no resurrection without a cross. Okay, So if God's going to do that, Sunday miracle, there has to be a Friday death, right? So these things are part of the same thing. William, excuse me, Robert Mounts is his dad. In his commentary on John says, the outcome was so certain that it could be stated as already having been accomplished. The verb that's used here for, or the description of his glorification the Son of Man is now being glorified, is in a tense in Greek that called the aorist tense, that the beginning has begun and has effects that follow through. And so this is what's taking place here. He sees this as his glorification. I think it's interesting that he uses the phrase Son of Man. Did you see that there? Look at uh, uh, verse 31 again. Now the Son of Man is being glorified and God is glorified in him. Uh, some, sometimes people think that Son of God is the term that is his deity term. And actually, the Son of Man is his, is his divine title. Anybody know where that comes from? Son of Man? Okay. It's Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Remember the story about the, or the, the vision that Daniel has about the Ancient of Days. And one comes riding in on the clouds like the Son of Man. And when Jesus takes his favorite title for who he is, it's Son of Man. It's a divine figure that will receive glory and honor and whose kingdom will never end. And so now he's talking about his his uh, glorification. The Son of Man will be glorified. Son of Man is used 12 times in John. And uh, uh, the Son of Man passages mostly deal with his divine nature. In John, they're used as shorthand for uh, his divine nature as Messiah, uh, and his work as revealer of God, redeemer of mankind, mediator between God and man, 
and as final judge, as it shows us in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And I think the cross is such a strange path to exaltation, don't you? That this is, this is God's mystery that was hidden in ages past that's revealed to us, that nobody could have figured this out. Uh, in fact, when it was happening, many people missed it because of the, the fact that there was a cross that was there. Uh, one is lifted up on a cross, but usually the reason for a cross is to be held up in shame, right? What do you think they, why do you think that they put people up on a cross along the side of roads? It's a warning, an example. What's that? So people could see it. And they stripped people completely naked and put them on the cross. And so the intention of the cross was to humiliate and shame that person and act as a deterrent to everybody else. Don't cross Rome. This is what we do with insurgents. And Jesus wasn't the only one who's ever been crucified. Other people have been crucified. But he's the only one whose death is significant and vicarious for us. He stood in our place. But it was a symbol of shame, and shame and as an example. But Jesus was lifted up in glory. He's being held up as a demonstration of God's love for us. And while in the purposes of men, a cross serves one end, the same event in the purposes of God serves another. Others were put up to show the power of Rome. Like, this is what happens if you cross Rome. We're more powerful than you, and we will, squ- we will squash you. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, it showed that Christ, uh, Christ's power, God's power, was stronger than the power of Rome. And all that will happen will happen, we know, with God's knowledge and will end in glory. Jesus is predicting the, the consequences or the, the next steps, the things that are coming after this moment, isn't he? Like, he knows what's going to take place. And I think one of the purposes of this is to let the disciples know that none of these things that are going to happen in these next hours are a surprise to God. Why do you think that's important? So we don't lose faith? Why else? If you know God knows about it, what does it tell you? He He's in control. Amen. Is that, I mean, that's a... A good place to say amen, isn't it? Anybody gone through something that you wish hadn't happened, but you're glad you knew that God knew in advance that it was going to happen? He's in control. He didn't let you go down some road that he didn't know about. And here we can see that he knew exactly what was taking place. And so Jesus is telling them in advance, this is, don't misinterpret what's about to happen. This is my glorification. It's going to look to you in that moment like it's my shame. You're going to feel ashamed. In fact, Peter's going to feel enough ashamed that he's going to deny knowing Jesus. But don't misinterpret what looks like shame and is really God's glory. So uh, all that happens will happen with the knowledge of God. It will not be good, but it will end in good. Can we make a careful distinction here? That not everything that happens is good. And I would suggest to you that not everything that happens is God's will. Surely we agree with that. Don't we? That not everything that happens is God's will. Remember um, Joseph when he's talking to his brothers. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He took the evil that you did and he turned it to good. I think we can make a careful distinction there between not everything that happens is good, but for those who trust in God, it can end good, can end well. And it will look like shame, but it will result in glory. So Jesus now is preparing them for a disguised road to glory. And isn't that the way it often is with God? What our eyes see kills hope in us unless we hold on to a promise. Uh, When speaking to Peter later, he talked about the death by which Peter would glorify God. That's interesting. That's going to come up in just a a few moments. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory which will be revealed in us. So we see this kind of uh, 
connection in Scripture between going through things and glory being revealed in us. And so this passage calls both the upper room disciples and us to hope in God, hope in his glory when things sound bleak. God will be glorified. Do you know that? He'll be glorified. So I think there's reason to rejoice in that. Here's the second word. Let's try to plan a little better with our spacing. Uh, Expectation. All right, and this is uh, verses 34 and 35. Look at those with me. It kind of skips past part of it, but we're going to group all of that together in the last point here. Verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. What's the the word that stands behind love here, we all know it. The Greek word, agape, right? Agape, this is the, the love of God. And it means to have warm regard for and interest in a broad range of persons. Okay? This is a great place to plug 242, but I've already done that. Uh, you know, when you, when, you, when you exist in a church community, you have to love a broad range of people. Not everybody's alike. And can I tell you a little secret I've learned from pastoring is sometimes churches attract weird people. And you're laughing, but everybody's thinking about you. Right? So, but what that does, this gives us great opportunity to practice the command to love a wide range of people, a wide range of persons. And it's interesting because one of the dictionaries for this particular Greek word says, apart from recipients of special devotion, okay? And I want to explain what I mean by that is that if you have a wife or husband and kids or towards God, those are people of special devotion, right? You have special devotion to your spouse, to your kids, okay? This kind of love has to go beyond that, that we're not just showing favor, we're not just showing love and interest in people that we're interested in by nature. This is love towards all humanity. And I think specifically he's talking here about love within the Christian community. Sometimes you'll find that it's hard to love people, that we have to do it with the love that God gives. So I'd like you to notice a few things about this kind of love. Um, it's uh, a love that's practiced or expressed. So you have, you have the noun which describes it like we did, uh, to have warm regard or interest in a broad range of persons apart from recipients of special devotion. The verb is to practice or to express that love. Okay, so the, there used to be an old DC Talk song, which I'm sure all of you are listening to all the time. Uh, called uh, Love is a Verb. Anybody remember that one? If you don't, it's uh, it's kind of a cool song because it talks about how we don't just feel love, we practice love. We do. We do love. You, you know what I mean by that? We, it's an act. And, and I don't want us to get weird about that, uh, but that's love is, is, is verbal. That not just we speak it, but we do. We do the act of loving one another. So, uh, this love is to be, I'm just going to mention it instead of writing it here, it's to be a superior love. So, notice he says here in verse 34, a new command I give you. I want to ask a trick question, and I'm leading you a little bit with that. Is this a new command to love? It says it's a new command. Is it a new command to love? Nobody wants to go against Scripture, do they? It's not a new command. And I give you a reference for it if you'd like it. Uh, Leviticus 19.18 says that we're to love our neighbors. And that was in the Old Testament. That's under the old regime. And so when we suggest here that this is a superior love, um, this isn't a new command. It's just given new emphasis so that it supersedes the previous command given in the Old Testament. So it's not new in terms of um, 
what it is, it's new in terms of its quality. Okay, so th- this is Jesus calling for a higher kind of love. It was new in the sense that they had been shown a new model of what that love looks like. And they were getting ready to. So Jesus is telling them they're to love one another as I've loved you. And he's going to tell them before the night's over that no one has greater love than this, that they lay down their lives for their friends. So he's going to show them what love is like when he goes to the cross. Are you with me? So this is like a new kind of love. Don't just love a person uh, to this level, but love to the point of death is what he's saying here, a superior kind of love. And then the second thing that we see about this this kind of love, and this is his expectation, Jesus is expecting his disciples to follow his command in the middle of saying, I'm going to go to the cross and be glorified, and, and I think they're kind of getting the picture. Uh, he's saying, and I've got a command I need to give you. I need to give you this command, a new command, at least a new emphasis on this command, uh, a new level to this command, to love one another as I have loved you. And if you pay close attention to the rest of his discourse, you find out what that love looks like. It's self-sacrificial love. It's a modeled love. So we have a superior love. We have a modeled love. He says, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Let's see if we can diagram this. Um, And I would just put here as I have loved you. Okay. And then so right here, love one another. Okay. So the as here, okay, right here. Means just as, even as I have loved you, uh, in comparison to how I've loved you. So when we think of how we're supposed to love one another, we, we a lot of times measure that by how we feel about people. And that's not the measurement that this is describing here, as I have loved you. The measurement of what love looks like is, is it self-sacrificial to the other person's interest. That's the kind of love Jesus is calling for. And so let's stop gauging it by how we feel, and start asking the question, are we really doing what's in other people's best interest, even if it means it costs us? Okay, That's the kind of love. So, and this uh, word so here, in, the, in, in this way, so means in this way. Okay, and the in this way goes to as I have loved you. This one another here means that it needs to be reciprocal. Okay? One another means that we're expected to love each other, that we don't just get to have it one way. We need to have it. We need to love each other and cycle back love. Okay? Sometimes it's easy to be the recipient of love. It's, it's a lot harder to be the giver. But God's called us to reciprocate that kind of love. What happens if we take out one of these um, right here? Should this person still love? Yes. Thank you, John. Should still love, even if the other person doesn't. We're called to love one another in this way. This is Jesus' command. It's the kind of love what Jesus modeled it was a love which was self-sacrificial. He died in our place. Uh, and this is the kind of love he calls for, is laying down our lives for one another. And he was asking them to do that very same thing. Um, and the laying down might be once for all, or it might be in the little things, like I'm not going to insist on my way. I'm going to let you have your way. You ever been in the annoying circumstance of trying to find a place to eat after church? Where do you want to go? I don't care. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Where do you want to go? It's almost annoying how, how much we follow this preferential treatment of one another. But I love to see that, even if it's a little bit on the annoying side, because it shows that the heart of people is to prefer one another. And I think that's good, even if it means we don't get there quite as quick. 
It's a call to to love one another. And sometimes we do it in in big sacrifices, and other times we're called to do it in just the little everyday things of putting other people first, not my way, but your way. And in case in case uh, a lot of the American junk has gotten into our thinking where we, we insist on me first, let's remember that Paul also echoes this. He says, um, let none of you do anything out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in love consider others better than yourself. Well, I, we, we need to have high self-esteem. I don't think so. I think self-esteem, a lot of it is a bunch of baloney. I think we need to have God, God esteem. And that if we have God esteem, we esteem him highly. And he said, I love you. Our value comes from that and not of having an inflated ego. Our value comes from the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. We don't have to sit in front of the mirror and do self-affirmations. God's given us all the affirmation we need in Jesus. And so that doesn't mean that we always walk as if we're superstars or whatever. But it ought to mean that at least we value that God has dignified us, and we don't need anybody else's word about that. And so we can go forward and realize that my serving you doesn't diminish me because God says I'm valuable. And so self-esteem, I would just challenge you to think twice about that and read your Bibles on it and see what God has to say about it. Uh, That is a construct of a therapeutic age. Okay? Esteem God, and he'll give you all the help you need. Anyway, that's not in the sermon, but you can put extra in the offering if you like on Sunday for that one. (laughs) Later, Jesus says, uh, my commandment is this, that you love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for one's friends. And so, as I've loved you, so love one another. This is kind of a confusing mess, so we're going to get rid of that. And I'd like you to notice, uh, in terms of love, it's an identifiable love that that uh, he's given us. Notice by this, what's the this there? By this, will uh, everyone will know that you're my disciples. What's the this? It says, by your love for each other. It goes on to repeat it. If you love one another. If you love one another then people will know you're my disciples. There's, there's supposed to be something special about the church that love identifies us as standing apart. It ought to be something attractive that causes people, especially people who may be on the outs, on the outsiders, to find something attractive here. And others who maybe aren't on the outs, ought to, even if they've got a lot of friends, they ought to recognize there's a distinction between worldly love and the love... <coughs> that we have as believers. It ought to stand apart. And in fact, it has through history, a third century apologist named Tertullian, he wrote uh, his uh, book, Apologies, and that's not a bunch of saying, I'm sorry. That's uh, him defending the Christian faith against the pagan religions. He wrote this. um, He said, the pagans uh, said of early Christians, see how they love one another. And he added, how ready they are to die for one another. The concern and the care exercised by members of the early church for each other made a definite impact on the pagan culture. And it's little wonder that the Christian faith spread so rapidly throughout the ancient world, as it's always been true that love is the mightiest force in the world. And I think that's so true, that if we have love for each other the way that God intends for us to, it ought to be attractive to the world. They ought to say, those people are Jesus-like. And what about the opposite side of things, the fighting and the disputes and the anger and the hatred that sometimes comes from religion? Does that point to Jesus or away from him? And unfortunately, the church too often has shown that. And uh, it's not because that's the church's nature, when Christians act like that, they're doing that in contradiction to G- the Jesus way. Okay, so this is not us practicing the Jesus way. And so, if a critic ever says, "But you guys, you guys fight among one another," you should say something like Gandhi said, <laughs> you know, that I love their Jesus. I don't care so much for the Christians. Sometimes that's the case: is that Christians don't act worthy of the name of Jesus, but we should. 
It's important to notice that Jesus gives this, uh, where Jesus gives this command. Okay, so let's take a look back here. What has he just talked about prior to this command to love? What is it? His glorification. And then he slips another comment in there that he has to later come back to. And what is that? That's in verse probably 35. No. Yes, 35. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and you won't be able to find me. Uh, You're not going to be able to go where I go. Um, And then a new command I give you. It doesn't wait around to talk about it. It doesn't give application. doesn't have discussion, at least from what we know, what's recorded by John. It's on to the new command. And then uh, Peter asks a question and brings the discussion all the way back to where are you going, Lord? Okay. So here's the thing that I find really interesting is that this comment about love comes in the middle of some stressful statements that the disciples would have experienced. They would have, those would have been distressing if Jesus, if you'd been walking with Jesus for three years and he tells you, I'm getting ready to go somewhere and uh, you guys have gone everywhere with me, but where I'm going now, you can't go. That would be a little distressing, wouldn't it? And then no more comments about that? And we're sitting there wondering, and I'm about ready to be glorified, and there's a hint that this might have to, something to do with an execution. And Jesus takes time out to say, you guys need to love each other. Don't you find that interesting that a command would come right there? As I was looking through this today, I was trying to find, how, do, how does this all connect? And John, in particular, I find almost exasperating in trying to find the connections between one statement and the next. There's a lot of that. Here, uh, I think it's interesting that he says that right in the middle of this these stressful comments. He's going to be he's going to be going somewhere, and they need to love one another in the stresses, without his immediate presence. Bad times are not an excuse for the church to act unloving. Do you see that? I'm about ready to go somewhere. I'm not going to be with you. It's probably going to be stressful. I want you to love one another. Do you know that a lot of times when things get stressful, people get nasty? Anybody experience that? Like, it gets a little stressful, and we get, claws come out. We don't act like ourselves, or are we, exa- are we acting exactly like ourselves? Because when there's no stress, we can use all that energy we use on stress to put up the front. This is who we are. But when the stress comes, we've got no energy for the front, for the facade. All that energy goes into the stress. You understand? And so the facade comes down, and maybe the real us comes out. Remember how uh, somebody talked about, and I can't remember who it was, that uh, if you bump into a cup, whatever's on the inside is going to spill out. And so when these stressful times come, out of the abundance of the heart, mouth speaks. And so Jesus says in the middle of this, you need to love each other. The command calls for those disciples and for us to love each other. And that difficult times, bad times, stressful times are not an excuse for us to act unloving. But we need his help. Okay. Finally, here this is a little more difficult, but let's, uh, let's look at it. This is going to be separation think it's going to be. How about never mind on that? Separation and reunion. All right. John 13, 33, and then we'll skip down to verse 36 through 38. My children, I'll be with you a little longer and you will look for me. And just as I told you, told the Jews, so I will tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. And he's referring back to somewhere around John 7 when he said that. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot come now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus has Peter's number on this, doesn't he? It's going to happen exactly like that. 
I think it's interesting, too, that the flow of thought is interrupted. As we've, we've talked about, uh, he's talking about his glorification, and then he talks about, um, he talks about going somewhere. And then he mentions the command of love, and Peter cycles back to this. Peter brings it back to the departure because that's pressing on him a little bit. That's stressing him out. Jesus, I thought you were going to be with us. Maybe they had an expectation too. They, they no doubt had an expectation. We hear it at the ascension. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There's expectation here that Jesus is going to be a certain kind of Messiah, political Messiah. He's going to kick the Romans out, establish a throne that everybody can see. And rule from Israel. That's the thinking. That was the, that was the messianic expectation. And Jesus came to do something a little bit different. This is probably one of the reasons why he always told people up to the hour, his glorification, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anybody what I've done for you. Because he didn't want people uh, attaching their messianic expectations to his mission. Because what he was there to do is something very specific. He was going to be the suffering servant who dies for the sins of the world. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And so they may have a different expectation. So Peter's like, wait a minute, where are you going? He gives some departure statements. In one verse he says, I'll be with you only a little bit longer. Okay, And then he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then the third uh, thing he says is where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And I think probably what he's talking about here, there may be a double intention, but I think the immediate thing he's talking about here is his death. I think that's why John brings up John uh, Peter saying, I'm willing to die with you. I think that's the immediate thing. There's going to be more that follows, and it goes into the next, uh, next chapter. But Jesus here is going to go to the cross alone, despite his own faithfulness to his disciples. They would, they, they're not going to stand with him in the hour of his trouble. And what we see in Jesus and his disciples is both the strength and the weakness of human character. We see in Christ strength, don't we? Christ went willingly to the cross. He knows this is the moment of my glorification. I'm going to leave you. He's the one who's getting ready to go to the cross, and he's the one encouraging the disciples who are not going to the cross. I think that's really fabulous, don't you? It talks to Jesus' strength of character. He, he told the Pharisees in John 10, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one can take it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. We see strength in Christ. He's ready to go to the cross. I know there's going to be that Gethsemane prayer as the moment approaches, but he's readying himself to go to the cross. He's looking forward to his glorification. He's anticipating his departure from the disciples. But in Peter, we see weakness. It doesn't look like weakness. Maybe if you looked at Jesus in that moment as he's washing feet and then he's speaking gently, it doesn't look like strength either. But Peter often, there's, it seems to me, a lot of machismo there. Like he's like, we're gonna, we're, I'm going to go die with you. And a lot of times we've seen that in people, haven't we, where there's been a lot of, um, a lot of talk, but not a lot of show. And maybe this is where Peter's at. And I don't know that, I think, in my opinion, I think Peter had every intention to go die with Jesus at that moment when it's safe in the upper room. I think he really did think that when the moment came, he would. But sometimes we don't know our own weakness. And Jesus does. He knows our, he knows our weakness. So Peter said, I'll be willing to go lay down my life. But Jesus knew him better than he knew himself. And later, when he hears about the path ahead of him... <laughs> He's not so eager to embrace death. <laughs> Remember that with the Jesus is um, calling Peter to renewed discipleship. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. You know I love you, Lord. And he says, you're, 
you were young and now you're old, there's going to come a day. You used to walk about wherever you want. There's going to come a day when people are going to carry you to a place that you don't want to go. And John gives us the little commentary there. He tells us by this, he spoke of the death by which Peter would glorify God. Glorify. Isn't that interesting? That you can glorify God in your death. And Peter says, what about him? What about John? Right? What about John? Like, isn't that just like us to look around, hear God's call for us? Oh, that sounds like a tremendous sacrifice. Early, he's, he's ready to say, whatever you say, Lord, I'm willing to die with you. Now he's like, oh, I really do have to do that. What about John? And Jesus says, that's not your concern. Follow me. You realize that when God calls us to follow him, he gives us the grace necessary to do that. You might look at other people who have gone down a road that's harsher than yours. You might think, how could they ever do that? And what we need to know is that God gives us grace for the circumstances we face in life. And so don't say that you couldn't do something. If God wills that you should go down a particular road, he'll give you the grace to do it. Peter's not excited about this one. And uh, tradition tells us that when finally he does lay down his life, they crucify him, but he insists on being crucified upside down. He's not worthy in his mind to die the same death as the Savior. So why does Jesus call him out like that in front of the other disciples? He exposed the weakness of Peter's intention, didn't he? Like, you think you're going to go to the cross, you're really ready to die for me, but before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. I don't know if he pulled Peter aside to say that or if he said that in front of everybody. Like every boisterous statement that Peter says, Jesus has to answer him right back. And he tells him, you're going to deny me three times. So I asked the question, why would, he, why would he do that? Why would he expose that weakness? And here's the options I came up with. And I'm just going to tell you, I don't know. It could be all three of these or it could be something else altogether. But it seems to me... Uh, one reason is is that Jesus wanted to deflate false trust. Okay, Peter is finding his strength in himself to do this. Like I'm going to do this out of my grit because I love you. Okay, and uh, when we trust in ourselves, we're trusting in the wrong thing. Okay, this is why self-esteem doesn't matter as much when you're a Christian because you don't do anything apart from me. Jesus says you can do nothing. So we don't bring anything of substance to the table except the offering of ourself, which is a gift that God gave us to begin with. None of us willed ourselves to be born, right? If you ch- chase the chain all the way back, God created us male and female. And uh, out of the indirect chain from that event, and still there's a miracle at every conception, we were born, not of our own will. So here we are with our lives that we think are ours, and they're really not. They're God's. Like we couldn't get, if, if God chose to not sustain the earth or the universe a moment longer, we're dead in the water. Even the air we breathe is borrowed, right? The food that we eat, he created that too. So all, we're really living on everything borrowed from him, and it's really, are we going to offer it back to him? So maybe he wants to take a little bit of that out of Peter, that you can't do anything by yourself. A second possibility is he exposed inflated faith. Sometimes we think our faith is stronger than it really is. And then the test comes, and we realize how strong our faith really is in the test. And God wants us to know that, because even in our faith, we can't have faith in faith. We need to have faith in God. Faith is only as strong as the object it's placed in. If your faith is in your ability to believe, it's weak. But if your faith is in the great God who can answer and respond to any small mustard seed type faith, you can do great things. God can do great things through you. He can do great things for you because you believed in him, right? I don't know if that's the reason. If uh, he has inflated faith, that he thinks his faith is bigger than it is. He's not as strong as he thinks he is. Or maybe... Um, Jesus, because of his love for Peter, is preparing him for the failure that's about to happen. 
Okay, he knows the weakness of Peter's character, and he's not trying to show him he's got weak character so that he can uh, build him up. Maybe, maybe he is. Maybe what he's doing is saying, Peter, I know that you're going to fail me, but I'm still showing you kindness right now because I want you to know when this is all said and done, I need you to come back and strengthen your brothers like he does in one of the other Gospels. When you come back, strengthen your brothers. Okay, And so maybe that's what it is. Maybe here he's saying, you're going to fail me, but I love you still. I'm going to still invest in you through the rest of the evening. I'm still going to count on you to pray in the garden, even though I know you're going to be you're going to deny me. And so he's telling him ahead of time, though I know you'll fail me ahead, I still love you. Do you know God knows your future failures and he still loves you? That doesn't in any way justify our future failures, and it doesn't in any way excuse them. It just means God's love is so great. He has hesed, right? The covenant love of God. He loves us in that way. And I think that's probably, it seems to me, that's the one that stands out most. Whatever the reason is, I I think there's a lesson in it for us. We often love grand gestures. Okay, Peter would love to, if Jesus is going to die, he wants to go die with him, or he thinks he does. But this moment is not a shared moment. You can't have Jesus dying on a cross and Peter dying on a cross next to him. There's confusion in that, you understand? And I'm not suggesting uh, in some sovereign way God willed Peter to, f- to deny uh, Jesus. But I do think here that this is not Peter's moment. He'd like to offer a grand gesture, but I'd like you to notice he interrupted Jesus' command about love to find out more about where Jesus is going. Okay? And what that tells me is that instead of looking at what Jesus is asking for, he's looking to offer a gift of a different kind. I want to I wanna go die with you. Jesus, I don't need you to go die with me right now. What I need you to do is stay here and strengthen these guys. I need you to love them, care for them. A lot of times we're looking for grand gestures. God's looking for the faithful covenant relationship of daily obediences. Smaller gestures, regular gestures, consistent gestures. When the big moments come, if you do the consistent things day to day, you'll be ready for the grand gesture. But we need to do the daily. We need to do the daily thing. Love one another. So John circles back to this love theme later on when Peter's being restored to commission. So Jesus asks him, do you love me? What's his response? Yes, I love you. And what does Jesus say? If you love me, then he's to do? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, right? So he's saying, if you love me, express it in this particular way. These things are necessary. But people, you know, it's the distinguishing characteristics of true disciples. And Peter, he wanted to make the great splash, Jesus asked him for everyday kinds of sacrifices. And you see, you start to see this over and over again in Scripture. This is just that moment of heavy weight that comes at the end of Jesus' ministry, but you see it through Scripture. In a couple key places, uh, if you keep your eye out for it, God says in Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he goes on to talk about how people are mistreating other people. You've come to pay your grand gesture at the temple or the tabernacle. And meanwhile, you treat people badly. I desire that you show mercy rather than sacrifice. And you remember in the New Testament when Jesus is talking about this, he says, if you come to offer your gift at the altar and you realize that you have aught against your brother or sister, go take care of that and then come back and offer it. He cares about how we treat one another. What about Romans 12.1? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that preached. Out of context. Look at the context. I challenge you. Read uh, verses 1 through the rest of the chapter and find out. The rest of the context is the way we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice is by loving one another and serving one another. That's all Romans 12 is talking about. How do we do that? We've got to put ourselves on the altar and die to self to let ourselves advance other people. Because that's how bad the flesh wants to be first. You see it over and over again. That's what God really wants from people is love for him and for each other. 
you see a separation and a return here, and we're wrapping up. Uh, Peter is going to be separated from Christ through denial, and Christ's going to return to him and forgive him. And I love how in Peter's story, he gets the same call twice. Have you noticed that? At the beginning, cast your net on the other side, and he's like, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And then after he's gone fishing in Galilee, Jesus stands on the shoreline and says, have you guys caught anything? Oh, we got skunked tonight. Cast your net on the other side. And Peter, they pull the fish in. Peter recognizes it's the Lord. And he swims to shore, and Jesus already has fish to cook. And another interesting thing, too, is there's two places where charcoal fires are mentioned. They cooked with charcoal. I know you think that's what I'm, where I'm going with this. But the first time we hear of the charcoal fire is when Peter denies Jesus. And the second time we hear the charcoal fire is along the edge of the Sea of Galilee when he says, do you love me? Feed my lambs. I can tell you, I cooked with charcoal and I've cooked with propane. There's a smell that goes along with that, and smell connects to memory. Don't tell me Peter's mind doesn't go back to that moment of denial. Now he's on the edge of the lake, and he smells that smell again, and he's being brought back in in the same way. I'm calling you again to return. We see Jesus being separated from his disciples through the crucifixion and rejoined to them through the resurrection. And we see Christ through the ascension being separated from us for a time. I, I'm going away, but, but be of good cheer and have, take heart. I'm sending a comforter to come along beside you, the paraclete, the one who comes along beside the Holy Spirit. And he will be with you and he'll be in you. Christ goes through the ascension, but we return to him through death or his return. Either we die and go be with him or he comes back and we go be with him. Either one of those, we return to him. Do you understand that there's a separation but a reunion, and this points to that? We have to have faith in the time between separation and return. And I would suggest to you that's where we're kind of living right now. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We understand that. But we, we long to see the Lord, don't we? I hope you do. Remember that uh, old hymn that we used to sing, Oh, I want to see him look upon his face. We want to see him. So we're anticipating that day, and we live in that middle middle place. And in case we get over-spiritual, I'd like to remind you of Romans 8. We groan inwardly, and so does all creation, and waiting for our adoption. So there's a groaning that takes place, eagerly anticipating the adoption that we'll receive uh, in Christ. In these verses which follow in chapter 14, the application for the passage is there. Don't let your hearts be troubled by these things. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't get bent out of shape. Don't let your heart go crazy on the fact that things are going to look a little different in that period of separation between now and then. It's all leading towards glorification. Okay, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is calling for faith in that interim period. And I think that applies to us now. We have to live with faith in the here and now. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again to take you to be with me. That's hope, right? You know the way. Verse 6 says of chapter 14, I'm the way. It's not about finding a geographical location. It's about finding a person. He's the way. And way there means mean. He's the means by which we go to the Father. And so now we live in that in-between, and we need faith, and we need hope. We also need what? Love, right? Love one another. That's what God's calling us to. Hey, thanks for your gracious attention tonight. Let's stand. We still feel at times as though Peter and the other disciples might have felt in that night when Jesus gave them the disappointing news. And we also face trials and difficulties in life, and sometimes things come that take the wind out of us. And I would encourage us that when those things come, we continue to look to Jesus and hope in Him, that He is, he is, he is glorified and He will be glorified more and more.
Amen. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. And I pray that as we've tried to apply these verses, we would find strength for the day-to-day. It may be that we're going through a, a trial and a difficulty that may feel in our hearts like it might have felt uh, when the disciples watched you go to the cross. Certainly wouldn't put anything on that level, but uh, it may feel like our world has been shaken in a similar way. And I pray that you would help us to have confidence in you. You've given us uh, a heads up that whatever comes in life, that uh, these present sufferings would not outweigh the glory which will be revealed in us. And you've told us that all things will work together for good. And it doesn't mean all things are good, but you've promised that, that you know how to work them out towards glorious ends. And so tonight, would you just strengthen our faith? And if we've got an inflated view of how strong we are, I pray, God, you would come and bolster our faith, that you would test our faith if needed to make it stronger. And uh, most of all, that you'd help us to stand in the day of trouble. We need your help in these things. Help us to love one another, too, at this church and other churches, Then everyone who's trusting in you as Lord and Savior would have high regard for one another and cling to one another and strengthen one another and be self-sacrificial towards one another. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Hey, we got done a minute late. I'll cut it off the sermon on Sunday. Bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.